visualization is not about only the end product, the end visual. It's what it does to you when you're creating it. Welcome back to the Medical Illustration Podcast. This is your host, Paul Kelly. I'm excited to share this episode with you because my guest has had and continues to have a profound impact on the way biomedical visualizations are designed and produced. He is the Director of Molecular Visualizations at the Center for Molecular and Cellular Dynamics at Harvard Medical School, and the founder and CEO of Digizyme, a studio specializing in biomolecular visualizations. He is also the founder of Clarify.com, an online community for students and educators interested in scientific visualization, and the creator of the Molecular Maya Toolkit. In this episode, we talk about his early experiences with making art and how he transitioned into biomedical communications work. We touch on some history of biomolecular animation and some current issues with online image sharing. We talk about his company Digizyme, the client work he's done, and some lessons he's learned, and the development of the Molecular Maya Toolkit. Please enjoy this interview with Dr. Gail McGill. So yeah, I think it would be great to start off with getting a little bit of a background on when you got started making scientific visualizations. So when did you first become involved with this? Yeah. So, you know, in terms of actually making scientific visualizations, I would say that it was uh, as a graduate student uh, at my first year in graduate school. But since I have no, you know, kind of formal training in, in scientific visualization, this was the first year of my, of my science PhD. So, um, you know, I was, I was there to do research, but, you know, almost as a, as a creative outlet. And, and I can go back a little bit and, and describe kind of why that happened. In other words, I did have a lot of art and music in my background before grad school. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah, so it was the first year, first year in grad school. It was mostly playing around with things like, uh, well, the, the basics, Photoshop, Illustrator, but very quickly things like Flash and, um, and that kind of served as the, as the foundation for deciding, you know, there's, there seems to be a need in this area. And that's very quickly thereafter, we actually started Digizyme uh, as a, I, that was my second year in grad school. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And who were some of the other folks you were working with at that time? So the only folk I was working with, it's, it's kind of funny. Asking, no, it's a perfectly legit question. But, you know, my, my real partner in crime throughout all of this has been my wife, Jeannie Park. So she, you know, so the, 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 the quick backstory there is that, uh, you know, we met in college. So she's um, uh, she majored in English and music. I, I majored in uh, biology, music and art history. And we, we met through music. So she's a, a violinist by training. I did a lot of uh, a lot of music, a lot of singing, performance, and so that's that's the channel through which we met. Um, she retooled herself after graduating from college uh, into kind of software multi software engineering multimedia, and so she was kind of playing a little bit in that sense with with her. Um, ongoing professional education. I was in the lab spending long hours, but missing, I guess, uh, in a sense, an artistic or visual output to the work. And and that's how we decided together to to start Digizyme. So, she, so that was really it. It was the two of us at first. And of course, with most people telling us, you must be nuts, right? As a couple, you're starting a company <laughs> together. That will, ne- that will never last. That doesn't work. And of course, you know, after 25 years of happy marriage and a company later, it's, it's wonderful. It's the best thing we ever did. Amazing. That's awesome. 
What a great story. <laughs> when you were first starting out, what were some of the work that you were seeing at the time that really inspired you? Yeah, I mean, there is definitely an email I remember. I, so I, the, the quick answer is probably the at that time, in other words, early years of grad school, it was the work of Drew Barry. No, no question about it. So as many other people, I noticed uh, his, I think it was especially the work that he was doing at the time for that had been commissioned by uh, Howard Hughes Medical Institute. It was some of his early DNA or kind of central dogma animations. And I, you know, I was just blown away. I, I was already familiar with the idea that one could do such a thing. In other words, create obviously visualizations of molecular events, but I had never seen something where I, I you know, I, I tend to think of him as a pioneer specifically in the area of wanting to add back some of the messiness and dynamics to molecular events that we very rarely saw before. And I think that's what really hooked me. So I just sent him an email. I just said, you know, um, I, I love your work. How do you do it? And of course, he was amazing. I mean, he'd be emailed right back with all kinds of interesting detail, um, which I had never imagined he, he would do. And so that started a, um, yeah, I, I would say a friendship. I mean, we've known each other now since 1990, what was it, 1993? Uh, wow. Or no, maybe a little later, 1996, I think was the email. But anyway, so his his work was key, I think, in really shifting gears and realizing this is something to learn. Like, this is really something I want to learn how to do. Um, yeah, I mean, more general inspiration, as I said, comes from, I think, earlier days because I grew up with, um, I guess my, my, my one-minute summary of kind of how I came to all this is that even though I didn't grow up in a, a family of scientists, I knew very early on that I wanted to do science. Like, um, as early as middle school, sci biology was just, absolutely my passion. So there was no question in my mind that that's what I was going to do. My dream was to come to the States. I, I grew up in Paris and I always dreamt of coming to the States to do research because that's where I read all the, you know, all the authors of the cool articles were MIT, Harvard, Stanford, these places that I had, you know, uh, I didn't know anything about. So to make a long story short, I, I really focused on science, but, you know, my aunt was an art teacher who lived in Europe. And so every summer, mostly during high school, I had this incredible opportunity to, I would spend two to three weeks uh, alone with her in Venice and Florence together. And it was like, wow. it was amazing, right? It's like having a, a private guide taking you around the, the cities and studying the art and uh, uh, eating ice cream, of course. Uh, so, but you know, that was really formative for me because she was a big influence on, on thinking about and looking at art. Um, so, yeah. So anyway, so that, that you know, bringing us to college and college, I also, you know, I was clearly going to study biology, but the, the art, art history and music aspects were also very much uh, front and center for me. So in that sense, when I reached graduate school, perhaps it was just a continuation of that. I needed some sort of artistic outlet in addition to the science. Wow. That's awesome. That is so cool. So I, I'm immediately curious if there were any differences in the education systems that you experienced. And did you carry over any of those differences and integrate them into the way that you are doing th things now? 
Yeah, that's that's a really interesting. It's it's um, it's a really interesting question. So the answer is yes. Um, the the you know growing up in France, there is such. I, I don't know if this is still the case, but it is a system that is has such an obsession with math and and you know kind of success through math. So literally, even though there are different what they call baccalaureates that you pass at the end of your high school years, this kind of this big exam. And you know, there's baccalaureate A, B, C, D, and they have different um you focus on different things, right? So A, baccalaureate A, for example, is literature and math. B is economics. C is math, physics, chemistry. And D is math, physics, chemistry, biology. And so obviously I was, you know, I was headed for D. That was the one that, that you know, but what they don't tell you underneath all that, or at least the way I experienced it, is that there was kind of a ranking, right? So, mm. so if you could kind of cut it in math, you would do C or D. If you weren't quite as good, then you might let, end up in A. And then for f- some weird reason, don't ask me why this is the case, but, you know, B becomes the one that's kind of at the bottom of the totem pole, uh, economics. I, it, You know, again, it's completely unrelated to the actual subject matter in a sense. <laughs> but so, I, you know, that's just to quickly say that, yeah, the, the system was completely different. It was very rigorous. I mean, I have to say one of the strengths of it was that it was really... Um, yeah, it was just more hours. I, I went to an international school uh, for, for my 13 years of, of schooling where it was kind of a normal French high school in addition to uh, um, eight hours of U.S. high school classes. So they were kind of longer days and you had to be bilingual going in. So in that sense, it was wonderful because the, the hallways of the school were literally chirping in all kinds of languages. I mean, Japanese here, Italian, Danish, uh, so that was amazing, but it was, it was, it was tough. And I think arriving in college in the States was quite a, um, I, you know, maybe a kind of a pleasant shock in the sense that your time is much more your own. Um, but my fir- I'll never forget my first week in college in the States, I was called into the registrar's office and they said, okay, well, you're a sophomore now. I was like, what? (laughs) They said, yeah, given your baccalaureate from France and what you've done, you now have sophomore status. You can leave in three years. I was like, I don't want to leave in three years. (laughs) And I did leave in three years. I I took some time off to do research as a junior. But but I guess I I mentioned that because it does say something about the French system, which is that it really was, at least at that level, it was a very rigorous training. And um, and of course, that all, in a sense, I won't say goes away, but the, the, the four years of undergraduate that the U.S. And, and Canada have to offer, I think, are unmatched by anything else. It's, it's an incredible system that France doesn't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, won't, I could go on about the, the pros and cons of the French system, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. No, it was, it was a great transition because I think it was an early solid training. And then college, of course, was a, was a wonderful experience of the, of the freedom to combine these fields as, as one wanted. That's awesome. Wow. That is so cool. (laughs) That is a perfect segue actually to my next question, which is in regards to younger folks and especially what we see nowadays with so much of the education being online, I think younger people have more ability now than ever before to take control of their own education. So what advice might you have for younger folks in directing their own education? Yeah, that's that's so true. I mean, it's it's um, 
I actually think about that a lot because maybe as, as we'll discuss later, we're, we're very much excited and involved in trying to develop resources, educational resources for people who are interested in entering the field. And so there's this question of, you know, what, what is the, what are the, what are the critical foundations that you can only get in certain settings versus things that not only you can get on your own, but in reality, you'll probably keep picking up and have to pick up the whole length of your career, right? Mm -hmm. So things that relate to training in particular software or things like that. I mean, those are, those are critical. You can't enter our field, I think, without enjoying software to a certain extent because you're going to be you're going to be swimming in it and it's going to keep moving quickly so yeah i guess to answer your question you know i'm i'm biased right because of my own background for me science still a, a really um solid anchoring in the science is is critical and and drives everything i do and so um i i think that you know this is maybe related to um, some of the other things that I know we might talk about relating to what might you have done differently or what advice would you have given yourself, those types of things. I think for someone who is early in their career, my immediate answer would be absolutely try to go through one of the programs, the, the brick and mortar programs uh, like Hopkins and Toronto and, and, and the other. I mean, there are, it's it's not a long list, but from what I've seen and, and the people I've met who teach there and who have been students there, you I, you can't really do better than that. The, these are amazing programs. Uh, and, and the training that I see, you know, the, the, the experience that students get coming out of these programs is just, um, it's incredible. And, and we all see, you know, every year in the, in the AMI salon, you know, it's a very intimidating experience. It's like, it really Holy cow. Yeah. It's especially for those of us like myself who do not have formal training uh, and, and are looking at, you know, what these students are, are, are being trained to do. So that's, I think that's my first answer. At the same time, what you said is totally true. I think for, you know, th there's a fair number of scientists or graduate students who will, as, as I think others in the field, we, we get emails from people who are not yet doing what we do, but who are really interested in knowing how to how to enter the field. And I think coming from science, what I usually tell people is that there, there has literally never been a better time for you to learn and transition kind of at your own pace and in a way that is not completely disruptive to your current job, if, if that's what you can't afford to do. So either geographically or for financial reasons, you can do so much to supplement your scientific training to get into this field, uh, that that's, that's just really exciting. And that was not necessarily the case uh, even, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. I mean, you know, my, my entry was to buy every single Nomen DVD that existed back then. And, and just <laughs> that was my way through, through Maya, kind of trial by fire. Uh, I, I can, uh, I'll get back to that later. But yeah, so I think, I think that go through a program if you can. You can't do better than that. But at the same time, there is so much that you can supplement that with. Or, or um, if you're embedded in the science at the moment, 
you can go a very long way with uh, kind of on your own steam, collecting your own resources, as well as mentors, of course. It's not all about tutorials and software, right? It's about connecting with people who can guide you both um, artistically and, and, um, and, and in terms of um, the, the, the business side of things as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm also curious if when you look back at all the different pieces of education that you've brought together, was there anything you wish maybe you had spent more time on? Or perhaps do you think there's a recommended order in mm. which it's beneficial to learn some of these things? Yeah, that's a, I mean, again, the first thought is, is to go back to this notion of the, when I say formal training and not having had it, what I mean is that, so even though I did a fair bit of, of art growing up, um, you know, and, and I think we all see this even on, on forums that have nothing to do with sci-viz or medical illustration in particular, but just the industry out there, the industry, the Hollywood industry, what we often see on forums is the, the, you know, the, the people who have the, the interesting positions, the jobs, and everyone's asking them, what, what do I need to focus on? They usually say fundamentals, you know, go back and take a drawing class, go back and learn about lighting and, you know, color theory, and, you know, all, all of these things that will apply to whatever output is ultimately meeting, you know, the human visual and cognitive system. I mean, those rules are pretty much um, I won't say all the same, but those principles are so fundamental that they they obviously uh, tie back and, and influence the work specifically in our field. So, so I think that's the first thing. I mean, but again, I also go back to the science. I mean, I think that for me, you know, when when I'm teaching, for example, Maya to graduate students at, at Harvard Medical School. Um, you know, some really, it's always so much fun because every every semester there's at least a few where it feels like a mini epiphany. Like they're, they're like, wow, this is what, this, this, I didn't realize this was the way I could mix my love of and, and passion for science with art, which they have some background in as well. So, but then they ask, you know, so what do I do? I want to do this now. And what I tell them is, finish your PhD <laughs> because there is still something about that training um, that teaches you to be a, a scientist and to think about science, I think in a way that's been really instrumental in the way that uh, I do my work, not in science, but in, in sci-viz. In other words, you know, th there's a way in which you can still, well, not only read about what you're what you're trying to explain and create visualizations of, but assess the quality of the science and and make judgments about, um, you know, is this a is this a solid piece of data? Should I be showing an alternate hypothesis or model here? Um, things that I think are are critical aspects of thinking and doing science that you usually get from kind of the extended uh, training that you get in a in a PhD program. Um, yeah. yeah, that is such an important point because a lot of times we do see misinterpretations or mistakes in artwork that are perpetuated, right? Uh, there's, you know, a couple stories out there. I think there was a an illustrator back in, you know, 
back in the day who had drawn this extra horn on a rhinoceros and then illustrators just kept copying that illustration over and over again and come to find out that most of these people had never seen a rhinoceros in real life so they didn't really know what they were showing well it's it's especially yeah it's especially relevant it's a really good point it's especially relevant in a field where no one has ever seen most of the stuff we're talking about that's below you know, I mean, of course, if we're talking about a, a surgical illustration, that's different. But I'm, I'm reminded of a, a Gordon Research Conference that um, th- there's one in particular for, for people who haven't heard about this. I know this is mostly kind of the, the, the medical illustration AMI crowd, but there's a Gordon Research Conference in uh, science, uh, visualization and science in education, which was fantastic, which I, I recommend to, to anyone. David Goodsell had been invited to give a talk. Um, and at that time, I think he focused on his uh, painting of HIV. But before he did that, he gave almost like a little uh, historical uh, overview of the depiction of HIV and how mistakes had been propagated through textbooks, even where it was clear that people were not creating their representations based on data. And, and primary literature, but rather by looking at other people's artwork. Um, and so, yeah, that is, it was a fantastic talk, of course, because it ends with his process, which is, you know, his watercolors are, are the tip of the iceberg. It's, it's, the, it's the data gathering and interpretation work that David goes through to create these paintings that I think most people may not realize is, is, uh, is, is the art of it in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, that's a great uh, place to pivot to talking a bit about Molecular Maya, uh, the plugin mm-hmm. that you developed for Maya, because I think that does address some of these issues. Can you maybe talk about some of the uh, the things in, in that biomolecular realm that Molecular yeah. Maya is particularly well-suited to represent? Yeah, I, well, I'd be happy to. Uh, but even, you know, if, if I may, just because I realize in, in thinking about the last few things I said, it's, I also don't want to give the sense, or at least that's not how I think of it, of, you know, there's, there's, there's scientifically accurate, and then there's like not scientifically accurate. I think that's actually really hard to put things in, in such categories, because I, I think of it more as kind of a, a gradient mm-hmm. that is that has multiple influences and, and forces that act on it, right? So one force is, of course, who's my audience? Right. And I, I would never say that it's okay to not be accurate if something is known and you represent it incorrectly. If it doesn't have an influence on whether the objective you have for your audience is going to be met, then make it accurate, obviously. There's never a reason uh, not to in that sense. I think what gets tricky is when you have a lot of information about something, but your target audience requires you to like like good teaching to know what to leave out, right? And so that's where we get into the the difficult and also really interesting gray zone, which is and and I, I you know this is the stuff that I, I love to talk about with my my great collaborator Jody and and some of the things we work on, which is what you know. What, what's that line where it's as clear as it can be without seeding misconceptions because you've removed aspects that would otherwise be considered more scientifically accurate, but that actually start having kind of diminishing returns in terms of the impact of your visualization. Mm. So I think audience is key, but I think on the other side of things, 
I mean, what does it mean for something to be entirely scientifically accurate? It's, it's just really hard to define. Um, if, again, it's, it's, if it's at the limit of knowledge, um, it's, it can be difficult. If there's something that everyone pretty much knows, I mean, a, a great example that I even see on the forum being discussed recently is always this issue of DNA, right? Is it right-handed? Is it left-handed? And a recent comment was interesting where someone referred to a left-handed helix and someone jumped on and said, yes, well, it's true. It's not often the most common form, but it does exist in, in nature. And that's a fair point, right? So again, what's the context? What are you trying to teach? Who's the audience? Anyway, it's a, it's a gradient of accuracy and it, it's hard to, to kind of point fingers in a sense. Um, but to get back to your question, sorry for the, the roundabout, you know. No problem. But yeah, so I mean, I think the goal or the, the philosophy behind molecular Maya, or at least what it is now, because at first it was completely just the need for a better tool for our own production to just, you know, we, we want to leverage the power of this great software, in this case, Maya, but it's the same for C4D, Houdini, Blender, 3D Studio Max. It's, it's regardless of your, your package of choice, I think the, the, our, our, our desire is to then be able to have access to the wonderful data sets that come to us from, from the life sciences. And so back in the day, you know, not to like age myself here, but there, there was like one tutorial on in this magazine, I think it was called like high end 3d. It doesn't exist anymore that Eric Keller had written uh, where there's some, some floating mel script that was here. Actually drew used this even. And then there was some other mel script that, you know, would put particles on the atomic coordinates. And then you had to kind of figure out what to do with it. Uh, that was one path. Another path, of course, was to go into one of the packages from the scientific community. So Chimera, Pymol, VMD, uh, build what you want to build, and then pray that there's some sort of, you know, .obj export, and then, or VRML, and then you'd be left with, you know, a one gigabyte mesh of a honking virus in Maya. Oh. <laughs> where you could barely move the thing around, you know, and you hadn't even built anything yet. So, yeah, that was the context for building this. It was, you know, if we can get this data in kind of natively, wouldn't that be wonderful? Because then you can make all of the decisions about what geometry to build and how to move the stuff using and leveraging the power of, of Maya. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so to make a long story short, I mean, basically back in, I think it's 2006 now is when we started thinking about about building this um, and I have to mention Campbell Strong who is really the architect behind who is you know kind of a coder extraordinaire who who is the guy who really started building this in our team who's a, just a, a natural natural born programmer one of these people who if you have to do anything more than twice he will just automatically build a program right or, <laughs> I'm the kind of guy who'll click, you know, 30 times on the same little thing because I my, my I guess my pain threshold is at a different set. I'll, I'll just keep repeating it. And I'm not good enough a coder to, to consider building a program right away. So thankfully for Campbell, um, we got Molecular Maya off the ground. And, you know, at first the idea and, and still is the case for what we call our PDB import kit is just let's bring the data in. And then from there, though, we decided we wanted to find a way to expand what the tool can do, but also have it in a modular fashion so that we could release what we're doing 
as we're doing it. So instead of having, you know, molecular Maya V1 through V14, where it may not be clear at each step what's what's new, we decided to go with this idea of, of supplementing the basic uh, toolkit with uh, kits. And each kit having a, you know, being defined by a certain functionality. So at the moment we have, let's see, four kits that are publicly released. We have the, in other words, in addition to what we call the basic molecular mind, which is the PDB import kit, we have the double-stranded DNA kit, we have the cytoskeletal kit, and then the modeling kit and the rigging kit. And um, I won't, you know, I won't go into the, the details of what's unique about each one, but um, I just really, I, I'm very excited about our, our recent releases because I think we're starting to see the benefits of what you can do when you combine the power of the kits. I think to me, that's when it really gets interesting. Can I, can I, you know, quickly solve some pretty challenging molecular modeling problems in the modeling kit, save out my own brand new PDB that any other software can now read, by the way, if you want to take it back into Chimera, go for it, you know, but can I then take that PDB that I just modeled that has all the domains, you know, based on primary structure and et cetera, and now taking into the rigging kit, literally click a button and using what we already get from molecular dynamics topology and force fields, can we basically leverage that to then have all of the ways in which the molecule move at least respect things like bond lengths, bond angles? You know, in other words, can we can we limit the amount of the number of mistakes in a sense that one could make? by pulling and stretching these things so that they, yeah, I think that, so that was kind of the philosophy behind the rigging kit, which is let's give it an armature. Let's give it a rig that is, um, that is born out of what we know to be molecularly correct. Now, having said that, I also don't want to overpromise. This is not molecular dynamics. Uh, and again, I won't go into the, the details of that, but you know, we're not the, there's no, there's no solvent forces. There's no electrostatics. There's no, there's none of those forces that the much more high end and kind of expensive computationally um, simulation programs do that, that labs actually use to predict uh, molecular behaviors. So think of it more as a, as kind of a coarse grained steered molecular simulation that helps you quickly build complex behaviors, but in a way that you know, has as much of the accuracy built into the software. That's kind of the, the philosophy. That sounds awesome. That sounds like such a great description. Wow. So I'm curious a, a little bit about the UI design of the kits that you've built, because I think they look great. And I think that you've been refining them over the years and they, they've just gotten better. Would you be able to talk about maybe some of the UI decisions that you've made? Yeah, gosh. I mean, even before UI, the first thing I should say is I would love to, um, you know, even though we we have historically picked Maya as our workhorse, which I think is just something that, I mean, that's not to say it's the only thing we use. As At, at Digizyme, historically, we've used everything from Modo, Maya, a little, little Houdini, some game engines, uh, of course, ZBrush. And so, you know, we, we, we like to use what different software packages are, are best at, at doing. But to develop a tool like this, we did kind of uh, focus in on our main 3D application. And so it wound up being Molecular Maya. But I can't mention Molecular Maya without, of course, mentioning uh, another great tool set that's out there that, unlike Molecular Maya, has the power of being more um, 
cross-platform, and that's Graham Johnson's uh, EPMV. Uh, and I say Graham Johnson, but of course, he, he built this with other folks in, the, um, in Art Olson's lab. So, you know, we would love, and, and this is going back to your UI question, I think ultimately what would be ideal is to, you know, abstract away some of what makes the tool 3D package specific and almost port that to the cloud and, and let us do still the work we want to do, but in a way that would allow you to continue your work perhaps in, in any of these applications. So, uh, and, and that's obviously something that we've, you know, thought about and, and have done experiments with as well. Uh, you know, questions like, does it require a new file format? You know, almost like a, an extended PDB that would carry the, the rigs that you build along with the coordinate data, things like that where, you know, make it here, but then simulate it somewhere else. So, yeah, so I think from a UI perspective, I mean, because we picked Maya, we've had to, we've had to kind of embrace in a sense and, and play the Maya game. So we didn't necessarily want to, to, to break anything or, or reinvent the wheel. I think there's some ways in which Maya users are already used to thinking about things that we've kind of bought into uh, in, in that sense. So we, you know, simply put, we take over what's called the, the attribute editor. It becomes the, the molecule editor and the different kits, uh, everything that's, you know, in development, available, or that you've purchased is in this kind of little left-hand column uh, so that you know what tool set you want to work with. So, so that's kind of at a high level. And then those become little little tabs. And, you know, again, it's, it's always a work in development. So even though some of the early work, you may be using one or multiple kits, we are still constantly trying to provide easy jumping off points where at a certain point still, it may not be useful to have your, your assets remain connected to Molecular Maya. Because to do the things we do, we have some complicated, you know, custom nodes that have been built. Uh, but... You know, so so we do try increasingly in our kits to make sure that there's also a button to say, okay, now release this thing from Molecular Maya, and go do whatever you want with it in, in in the fundamentals of Maya, uh, if if that makes sense. So there needs to be, you know, and and we need to get even better at making sure that people can benefit from the tool, but then not feel stuck in the tool. Yeah, I'm glad you say that because I think it also it really reflects that you are a person who is using this tool and you're making visualizations yourself. You are a scientific visualizer. So you're coming from the viewpoint of a user yeah. and that really translates in, in the way that it's designed and, and yeah. the way that it behaves. Well, that's, that's really, that's nice to hear. And I, I do, I guess I didn't mention this, but I, I really, usability is, is a big deal um, mm -hmm. because you know, Molecular Maya wasn't, it's, it's not just intended to make people's lives in the field easier, although I certainly hope it, it does that. And I'm, I'm thrilled when I see people like, you know, Drew Barry incorporated into his workflow now and, and others. But it's just as much about lowering the, the, the learning curve for, again, some of the, like some of the graduate students I teach, who, people have never touched Maya. In fact, you know, th this is not super common, but there are instances where I've wanted to test how far can I really go with this thing. For example, I had a, I had a few sessions with high school students uh, in, in local schools where we spent a morning building viruses together. And these people have never touched 3D. They, I mean, they don't know what a virus is. But after a couple of hours, after a workshop with Maya and Molecular Maya, they are presenting 
in front of a crowd of like four or 500 people. This is a program, an outreach program at Harvard Medical School where by the end of the morning, they have modeled and rendered their own, here it comes, scientifically accurate, you know, PDB-based viruses, a whole slew of them, and they're presenting to their peers and to their teachers, uh, and they're really, they're really proud because it turns out the virus they just made themselves looks a hell of a lot better than the virus rendered in their high school textbook. <laughs> so, and, and of course, the whole point underneath all of that is that I, I really, and that's a big theme I hope we can at least touch on quickly later, is, you know, visualization is not about only the end product, the end visual. It's what it does to you when you're creating it. So as these students are modeling their own viruses and they know that these things are built from coordinate sets that are, well, what are these things? Well, these are proteins. Where, where do they come from? Just There's no better way to learn about viruses than to build your own, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And so I'm hoping that we've made it easy enough and powerful enough in molecular Maya to enable complete novices to, to get pretty far pretty quickly and get results that really motivate them to, to keep going. So that's that's kind of part of the UI answer, which is we want to make sure that it's, uh, it's um, yeah, easy enough for, for students of all ages to jump in. That's fantastic. That's awesome. I mean, that is something we really want to see more of is people engaging with science and being excited about it right. and not feeling bogged down or, uh, you know, intimidated by, you know, the massive amount of information there. Right. But really get your hands into it and interact with uh, it. I think it, it gets people excited about learning it and wanting to learn more about it. Absolutely. There's a pride of ownership that these students display when they create these images, like, look what I made. It's, it's more than just, you know, oh, now I understand a virus. It's like, take a look at this. You know, I made this. So, so yeah, that, that theme of visualization as a process to better learn science itself for me is really fundamental and it's kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a, I don't know, soapbox in a sense, because some of the, some of the stuff that I'm, I'm doing with Jody at the moment and some of the activities and grants we're involved in are really trying to test whether that idea can be more commonly included in classrooms, uh, like mm. K-12 classrooms, early classrooms, because there's a, it comes with this idea of, of, not just scientific literacy, but visual literacy. So it's not just what happens to your understanding of, let's say, a virus when you build your own, but what happens the next time you do a Google search and see an image of someone else's virus, right? Because that, in reality, that's what we have to contend with as teachers. We can, we can use materials to teach students, but we're never going to be able to limit what they see. And so is the better philosophy to make them more critical consumers of scientific media so that they gain a better understanding of, you know, this doesn't look quite right, or that looks like it's been, I mean, even as basic as, you know, what images are photographs versus computer renderings? I, I know that sounds so basic to us, but I, I just went through an experience where one of our images was swiped on a Facebook news site and then went viral. And so it exposed me to like, literally thousands of comments from people from all all walks of you know all walks of life and there was a fair number of fair amount of confusion this was one of our kind of molecular good cell inspired molecular landscape images and there was a lot of people referring to it as a photograph mm. um now 
you know, is that not knowing how to use the right lingo or is that fundamentally people not understanding that, you know, this stuff doesn't come out of microscopes? So that's kind of what I mean about the power of visualization. If you can get people to make their own, there's an awareness, I think, of seeing other images they're going to encounter. And I think that's important in, in judging what's real, what's not, and, and kind of the level of scientific and, and visual literacy. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you bring this up. I'd like to talk about this a little bit because, as you mentioned, this you know went viral and you had, I think you, can you remind me uh, how many shares and likes and comments and the, the engagement? I, I honestly haven't kept tabs, but I, I know that I still receive emails every single day from people saying, well, you know, I want a print of this. It's, so the, the, the reaction, of course, has been, it's it's, I mean, you can't help but be motivated and it's wonderful. How we got there, though, is the part that's a bit more painful uh, in the sense that so this was a, a, you know, kind of a a cellular landscape of a eukaryotic cell that we had developed. And it's on our, you know, it's on our portfolio. It's an image that I guess has been pretty popular. It it was one of the the winners of the Images for Science uh, exhibit, I think, this year, IFS3 or something. The, the point being that, you know, it's something that we developed for a client a number of years ago, self-singling technology, and we made interactive versions of it. And again, for those interested, it's it's all on our portfolio. But at some point, apparently this this Facebook news site just grabbed the image and posted it on their on their feed with, a, with you know, without permissions, uh, along with a, a bogus legend to boot, of course, you know, most accurate model of a human cell, you know, oh, my God. So uh, and, and I didn't know about it right away. And then ultimately, one of my uh, colleagues or friends, I, I forget who it is, pointed it out to me. And, and by that point, it had gone from Facebook and jumped to Instagram. It then landed on Reddit. Uh, and it's been now two or three months where it's still kind of traveling around. So, yeah. So the joke is that, you know, for those of us who are trying to understand still exactly how the powers of social media work, here you go behind your back while you're trying to figure it out. Someone steals one of your images and it goes viral on its own and you have no control over. The, the only thing I could do is jump on these forums and try to answer as many questions as possible and kind of not redirect the attention. But what, what bothers me the most, I think, is not necessarily that people don't know who made it. Although, of course, we're, we're proud of our work and it, it is important to us. But it's that it starts to propagate uh, misleading information about the science itself. I think that's the part where I, I just get really excited and I want to, I just want to rectify that. So I think that's what yeah, I try yeah. to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad you bring this up because this is definitely an issue, I think, especially in our field. And um, it's interesting because, so I've had the experience, I, I've had it on both ends where, you know, I've had work of mine taken and used without permission. Yeah. You know, I've since kind of, I'm still sort of trying to figure out how I feel about, you know, the resharing of images. And I'll even say, you know, I occasionally have seen something on Twitter or, you know, a news site and I'm like, oh, this is so amazing. I, you know, I want to share it. And I do. And then I have that instant regret. I'm like, oh no, did I just contribute (laughs) to this problem? Right. And I'm kind of stuck between, well, wait a minute, this person put it out there to like promote their site, promote their work. I always include a link to the website. That is one thing I can definitely say for sure Sure. is anytime I've ever shared anyone else's work, it's always with a link like, hey, look at how awesome this person is or this company is. Go check out their stuff. Yeah, That's always how I've presented it. But even still, I think you make a great point in that creators should by default be sort of given that uh, control of their own work. 
yeah. it's, it's really cool to do that online, but I think there should be this kind of culture. We should foster the culture where Absolutely. the creator is, you know, directing the conversation around their own work. I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that, and the way you said it, I think is exactly the right way to think about it. it it's going to take time, but it's this idea of how, I, and I think it's even broader than that. I think it's the way that people think of just images as, I mean, we saw it, especially in, in, in education as well, where, you know, th there isn't really a, a second thought as to if, if I can find it, if I, if it came up in a search, you know, I can just grab it. And so uh, it, it's funny because on the one hand, and I see it with my, you know, I, I have two daughters, a, a nine-year-old and a 16-year-old in high school. I see, for example, how, and this is a good thing, they're um, taught about things like the idea of plagiarism, right? Early on in school. So, you know, text, words, you know, be careful. What does it mean? What, you know, but images, what, <laughs> that's, that's like, totally different somehow, right? So even though there's all this emphasis on, on plagiarism, and at least I feel good, you know, my, my the little side anecdote is my nine-year-old Clara decided to start a school newspaper a few months back. And mm -hmm. she has a Zoom every week with her, with her co-author girlfriends. She's in third grade, right? And so this last Zoom, guess what came up? I literally oh. eavesdrop and they're talking about credits for images. <laughs> Awesome. It's like, yes, like that's, that's, you know, if, if it can start, you know, that early. And of course, I'm sure she's aware of it because she's swimming in, in imagery because of the, the household she's in. But, you know, why not? If we talk about plagiarism and, and in essays and things like that, there's, there's no reason why people shouldn't consider uh, the, the effort of, uh, of, of making visuals and, and what it means. I think that the, the issue of Thinking that we're going to control it, though, is in my mind almost a second—not a secondary question, but a separate one—because mm -hmm. it would be great for these things to be released into the open, at least by their rightful, by their owners, by their creators. What happens to them afterwards, uh, even once they have been, I will say, correctly released, meaning with the right legend, with the right information? That's the realm where I think we're always going to have to. Uh, I, I hate the word accept because I don't want to be kind of, you know, fatalistic about it, but th there's going to be, it's going to go beyond boundaries, I think, uh, mm -hmm. regardless of the controls and the culture around it. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, it also speaks to, you know, the remix or the photo bashing, yeah. you know, tendency, like those art forms, I mean, you, they are sort of art forms unto themselves, right? Mm -hmm. I think if you're grabbing artwork and, you know, mashing it up and making something new, it's, it gets really cloudy as to like when you've created a brand new piece, that's a unique thing unto itself versus have you just sort of like, you know, yeah. recycle other people's work. It's, it's cloudy, quite common in like the CG VFX world where, yeah, they'll kind of go, they'll just go on art station or Reddit or wherever, just grab tons of images, Pinterest. I mean, people just go through right, Pinterest and right. just grab stuff and mash it together. Now, if that is to build a concept or to further the development of an eventual separate piece, right. I think that's different. You know, that's yeah. cool. It's, especially like if we're talking, this is all in-house, you know, like we do this at work all the time where we will just grab images to like slap together a storyboard to show each other, yeah. like or, or the style board or, or, you know, look at color palettes or yeah, inspiration for, yeah. Exactly. 
exactly, yeah. exactly. And there's great tools for that. I mean, they even have tools specifically for doing that kind of work. But when it comes to especially anything to do with money, anything to do with am I selling this or right. profiting off it or running ads yeah. on it, yeah. page being posted, anything to do with money, you got to make sure it's legit. Oh, yeah. for sure. Oh, no, no, no question. And and um, no, I, I I think that's a really good point you make about kind of the yeah, just kind of the, the cultural attitude around reuse of, of materials. Um, it's it's really tough. I mean, we try to, you know, for example, when I mention our seller landscape image, I mean, I love to and, and make sure to include with that image the fact that it, I, I call it our good cell landscape because I love to, I love the idea that perhaps if someone encounters our image, it would um, entice them to check, to go and check out you know, the master's work. <laughs> and and so it's not a matter of, of, of stealing or hiding. It's more a matter of, you know, if you've been inspired by someone else's work, you know, say it, refer to it. Mm. It's not, it's not a theft. It only kind of broadens the, 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 the phylogenetic tree of, you know, artistic influences um, in a, in a way. Uh, yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, that was even something we had done with one of our TVA surge videos where we were looking at references and there was an illustration by Lydia Gregg that we mm -hmm. loved. And so we mentioned like we were inspired by this yeah. look and aesthetic that she had, even though our animation didn't really look anything like her. I was going to say, right. And, you know, but just because we mentioned her, it's, it helped, you know, right. her like notice us and we had a nice fr friendly exchange. Yeah. And that's something I would love to point out to folks is that there's actually, it, it, you're, you're better off crediting people and sure. giving you know, due credit because you can then start a dialogue with those folks that you've been inspired by. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even, I mean, God forbid, even if the person you're, you're referring to who inspired you, I mean, maybe the thing you make is not something they like or, you know, that, but that's a whole separate, you know, at least there's the, the there's the link and it's, and it's acknowledged uh, about where you were, what inspired you. And, and then of course, what you did with it is, is yet a, a separate conversation. But yeah, I mean, I've had, you know, it's, it's not just images, I think, even in the realm of things like training and, and educational resources, I think we've, we've certainly had experiences where entire concepts were lifted and then just presented as entirely, you know, look, look what I made. I'm like, really? Yeah. That's the tutorial and, you took in my class like eight years ago. Really? That's, that's now your, your, so that sort of thing, which, which is just um, that, I think too bad. For, for entry level folks to know that all those tutorials that you've been following to build work off of, guess what? Everyone else in the industry has seen those. As well. <laughs> right, 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 right. When you have a piece in your portfolio that was just basically yeah. used, followed the steps, like everyone knows where you got that from. Right. Everyone knows what tutorial you watched. Yeah. yeah. So, it's, it's all about taking it a step further. Yeah. Just to not to be misunderstood. I think the idea of, I mean, they're, they're almost like some, almost like rite of passage sequences that I think people, you know, whether it's the erythrocytes floating through a, a vessel or, or it's, it's not, it's totally understandable and fine. And I think that's how we all learn to, to, I mean, I love tutorials. I, I actually, it's almost dangerous because, you know, it's, 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 it's not reality, right? It's so nice to kind of lay back and watch a tutorial and, and, and do some of it. Of course, it doesn't reflect the real challenges that you face in a, in a, in a production where you have to come up with, with your own solutions. Right. 
but what I meant was even less of a, you know, I watched this tutorial, I created a segment using the tutorial, then I put it on my portfolio or my reel. That's, you know, that's, that's okay. That's how you learn. But I, I was talking about a tutorial where someone created a tutorial oh. <laughs> based on it. Right. So it was like, it wasn't the theft of imagery. It was more like, okay, we're going to use this molecule and do this with it in these ways. And guess what? <laughs> and it's just that the person had actually been a student in my class doing the tutorial with me. So it was that much more kind of blatant. And it was very nice when I brought it up and said, you know, I'm wondering if that's not such a great idea. He was like, oh, I, I understand. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, okay. Anyway. Yeah. I feel, yeah. I follow you. yeah. I've, I've also seen that too. Yeah. Where people are just doing you know, somebody else's tutorial. Right. And then that's, yeah, right. again, that's right. like, take it to the next level. Yeah. Next yeah. Level. And frankly, it's probably, I mean, the thing that I find one of the most fun and exciting things I, I realize over the years that I enjoy in this field is knowing when and how and, and creatively how to adapt tools, powerful tools that were never meant for the work that we do to solve scientific visualization problems. I, to me, that's, I mean, that's why I love creating educational materials and tutorials is because it's just a, it, frankly, it's almost just an excuse to, to spend more time problem solving and kind of sharing that, right? So is, you know, how do you, how do you rig a molecule, you know, is a, is, is a bunch of, is a, is a joint chain the right way to go? Well, I don't know. That's, that's a unidirectional typically thing. Well, molecules don't really have like a, Et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you get, you know, you get my point. It's, there are all kinds of fun challenges that the science brings to you. And then the challenge is what are, what are pieces of the toolkit at my disposal that I can use together in new and creative ways to, to solve this challenge? And I think we all, I mean, you know, all of us go through that on a daily basis. So going back to, to this idea of, you know, the tutorials, one of the things I think is great about putting tutorials out there and which also serves in getting people to sort of understand uh, that ownership is you're demonstrating the amount of work and effort that goes into making the work that you do. Yeah. Right. And I think that's always sort of a challenge is for people to know and to understand how much time is invested in creating these images. What are some of the aspects of your previs and development and production that are frequently misunderstood or just not known about. Yeah. So if I understand your question correctly, now it's it's less of a kind of within the industry, but but more kind of vis-a-vis -vis clients or, or people who commission the work and, and and partner with you to create a visualization. Is that what you mean? So if, uh, sure. Well, I, I guess just anyone who is not yet familiar with right. the production process, but that definitely translates into client work. For sure. Absolutely. For sure. No. And I think my, my guess is that that is the, I mean, yeah, after I, I think about this all the time because any, anyone who is, I mean, either doing freelance or running a, a studio or a company and, and, and present always at the, at the point of, of client communication and exchange and managing the process it's just something that um, I, I think about all the time because you you try to constantly improve, obviously. And I think now after, you know, about 20 years of doing it, uh, I think I've gotten better at it. But at the same time, I'm noticing that there are some 
aspects of it that either I have, I can't figure them out yet, or there are just some kind of irreducible variables in the, in the, in the chain of, of, you know, production, pre-production production where, and, and I'm talking about, you know, when you talk early on with a certain group and you do your best to not only communicate to them what this is about, but also how in a sense they're going to have to behave to get the most out of their project. And and that's, you know, I think one thing you do get, or at least I know for myself, I've gotten better at is that instead of almost having like a, a, a punitive tone, like I use the word behave, you know, you, you want them right. to understand that these are rules that we've learned that will give you a better mm. result. Right? So it's not mm. just that if you don't behave and we have three additional iterations and your profit margin just went out the window, Obviously, you don't put it that way, even though that's, of course, what will happen. It's more that, you know, uh, and, and it's silly stuff. But again, I think the way these things are worded and presented will go a long way. One, one of the first basic things I tell new clients who have not, who are not very familiar with the process is that, let's say someone wants an animation. I try to tell them, you're not buying an animation. And I kind of, you know, I almost let that hang so that I kind of surprise them so they want to know like what do you mean i'm not buying animation you're not buying animation you're buying a creative process Ah. and you've chosen us to navigate that process with you nice and why is that so important is because the, the focus on how you get a successful output is how you navigate the process it's not this is not you know an area of the of of let's say the software industry where you know there are projects where you can list a number of very specific specs and then hand it over and say, go build this. And and someone will, you know, whatever, in C++, go build a program that does this. That's not how this work is, right? It's much more complicated than that. And so the only way that we arrive at, at the kind of the birth of what needs to come out on the other end and that is successful is to navigate this process. And I think that's probably the single you know, most basic, but also most powerful thing I can kick off that that process with is to make them realize that. So I think that's just an example. I mean, there are many other... That's a fantastic answer. Well, it's. I think one becomes more and more... Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that I particularly enjoy <laughs> the, the, the sometimes navigating that process because... You you are you are kind of a you know hurting. <laughs> I mean, you're 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 trying to remain open, of course, and and make sure you do understand and and keep telling yourself, okay, so this is the audience. These are the key objectives. Uh, avoid the the technical seduction of this solution. Avoid the eye candy seduction here. You know, so you're trying to keep yourself in check, of course. But at the same time, I like to think that, you know, people come to you and want work done because they already have a sense of the kinds of design design decisions that you do. I mean, they've already seen your work. They have a sense of. And so part of it is getting them to trust you uh, to, to kind of um, make certain decisions for them that may they may not yet see or 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 that some pieces of the pre-production pipeline are harder for novices to see. I mean, we, we talk about that a lot. The idea that we go through, you know, storyboard and style boards and scripts and animatics and play blasts and blah, blah, you know, the, every step we can to try and limit, right, the amount of change that needs to happen at the expensive end of production. 
But at the same time, I'm constantly reminded by the fact that, you know, we are all particularly good at understanding what will be born out of a storyboard, right? We can read a storyboard. That's that's part of our own literacy, where if you're showing a client a storyboard, they may not exactly be seeing what you're seeing, right? So mm -hmm. that little red arrow, which shows that the camera rotates in this way, you know, we understand that language, but we part of our responsibility, I think, is to also inform the client as to what this medium is meant to achieve. Definitely. Uh, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's this, I mean, again, I'm, I'm anyone who's gone through this themselves knows this is nothing new. It's just that it's kind of a, it's, yeah, it's an art to kind of navigate it, uh, in a way that you come out with something you're very happy with on the other end. It meets the objectives of the client. It's something you're proud enough to consider including in your portfolio, because God knows there's plenty of work we all do that never makes it to our portfolio because the the clients with whom you worked didn't kind of go in the directions that you you had hoped and 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 that of course you come out the other end also with um having at least made enough you know financial gain that you can not only support yourself but also have a little bit of breathing room to invest in directions that you think you should be going next i think that's the the way to think about it right i mean we mm -hmm. I think most of us enter the field not to obviously to <laughs> to get rich, but rather to to have the incredible luck of of spending time doing what we love. And mm -hmm. some of that, at least for me, is always trying to carve out time to just implement projects or, or kind of personal uh, visions is a big word, but ideas of things that you know you want to build that don't exist yet, but for which you don't necessarily have funding. And so that just has to come out of your 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 uh, you know, operating budget uh, that comes from client work for the most part. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. That, oh, man, that, this is all just gold for, you know, folks who are starting out and, and working with clients. I think that's one of the biggest challenges for a lot of people is to, you know, kind of figure out how to navigate that. Um, it's, and, yeah, it's tough. I, the one thing I can say that I, again, I can't promise it'll be useful, but there is one resource and, and maybe I can provide this as a, as a link, as a follow-up, but, and actually both Jody and I wrote uh, chapters in this book, this uh, designing uh, multimedia visualizations, uh, a Springer book. But the reason I refer to that is that in my chapter, I really tried to focus on like, what are all the variables that you need to consider when navigating this process. And I think, I forget the title I used or, you know, designing scientific multimedia in the trenches or, or something, but it was, it was really about trying to have the reality of how to manage projects with the difficulty of, you know, uh, design decisions with clients. So what are the, what are, what are the, the variables in that process. And so to the extent that that's useful, I would, I would refer people to that, that article um, because hopefully I've, I've been able to capture at least some of the things I've learned over the years. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'll definitely include a link to that. You know, I wanted to touch base on something you had mentioned earlier, which was about establishing trust. And you make a great point that, you know, when clients are approaching you, they approached you in the first place because they'd seen your previous work and they had a good idea of what you can produce. So, one would think that there should be a level of trust to begin there. So what, what have you been able to do to help build upon that, that initial uh, good impression yeah. and develop trust with clients? Yeah, that's, that's um, well, I think one of the, I, I think this answers your trust question, but the, the first thing I think about is that 
I, 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 I kind of like to see how surprised clients, mostly for, you know, scientific clients can be when you come prepared to the first, not even the kickoff meeting, even if it's before they've even, you know, signed on with you, but you have that first exploratory call and they realize in the first few minutes that not only you've read all their research, you know, you've read all the nature science papers, et cetera, but you're discussing their research with them at a level that they would expect from, you know, kind of a, as, a, as a scientific peer. I think for me, that's always been, I think, an important part. Uh, I mean, it's kind of hard to self-analyze, but I, I, I could see, I would like to think that that's actually been part of a, a big part of uh, some of our success is that very quickly, in, in fact, it's, it's not all just interpretation on my part. I'll, I'll never forget when we were in the very early days of Digizyme, when we really didn't know what, what we were doing. And uh, Jeannie and I went into you know, a pretty big deal meeting. I mean, we, we didn't really have real cor big corporate clients at that time. This was one of our, our first. We were mostly working with academic labs and, and um, not that those aren't serious clients, but that you usually have a fair bit more kind of breathing room and flexibility. So this was different. We were stepping into, you know, a corporate conference room with like a five, six member team with a CEO sitting across, you know, so we were, we were sweating. And... Yeah, I guess I guess two quick anecdotes from that meeting. I'm I'm kind of you know smiling at myself the more I think back on this. The the first anecdote is this, which is we brought in we had already done a fair bit of stuff, I guess, and so, so much so that we had brought in you know a whole bunch of like a a folder with transparencies with printouts of our basically our portfolio. So we walked in, we sat down, and we started talking, and you know that was great. And then I'll never forget one of the guys said, "So, so um." Are you are you designers? And you know the the knee jerk reaction actually for both of us with Gene was said, oh no 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 we're you know we're not no yeah, and then he kind of furrowed his brow and said, well wait so all these samples you just showed us who who made those? I said oh we we made them, and so he kind of looked at us like we were dummies and he said so so you are designers, <laughs> and then we had kind of this quiet moment and we said. Yes, yes, we are designers. <laughs> we felt so stupid, but it was literally that moment of, you know what? If if we actually make this stuff and people like it and use it, I guess, you know, if you quack like one and you, you know, so yes, yeah, so we are designers. Anyways, that that's kind of a silly anecdote, but a, a little bit revelatory of where we were at that time where we were just kind of putting stuff together and we, we didn't really think of ourselves seriously yet. And yet, you know, but anyway, sorry for the anecdote. The, the real thing I wanted to mention was, was something that I'll never forget that the CEO said at that point. And again, just starting off for us, he said, you know, by the end of the meeting and we got the job and we, we, you know, it was a, a fun project. He said, you know, you're like the, the third or I don't know, fourth, fourth group who's come in and interviewed with us today. And you're like the first ones who basically didn't ask us like what a protein was. <laughs> and, you know, what, what I'm, I'm, I, that's not an exact quote. He probably was referring to something more specific about his science. But I think that for me, the take home message was really important and kind of validating because the idea behind starting Digizyme for me was that we had noticed that there were a lot of high quality uh, groups and firms that, that produce amazing visuals that were already very much in our space in the Boston area. I mean, it's not like, you know, this, this work wasn't being done before, 
But what I hadn't necessarily realized or noticed is the the number of these places where a lot of the work was being marketed to life sciences companies, but there wasn't a lot of kind of scientific background um, within the team. And again, these in, in these cases, they, they were amazing artists. I mean, the skill was was incredible. But it drove home the message for me that it was really important for us to differentiate ourselves such that we, from that point on, we realized we wanted to build a team where everyone who is, you know, creating pixels mm -hmm. also has at least like graduate level PhD or master's level training in the science itself. Mm -hmm. and, and not just scientists collaborating with artists, because even though that's a model that's wonderful and has led to incredible work, in my experience, you can't quite tackle the same types of topics, or at least with the same level of detail, unless those skill sets are really merged together. And, and I think that's why, you know, a group like the EMI and the kind of training that the, the programs that feed into the EMI is so unique. It's because people are, are really not just collaborating with artists or scientists, they are truly duly trained scientist artists, and, and it makes all the difference. Um, yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir now, so, <laughs> but, but yeah, so to, to get back to trust, you know, I think when you walk in and within the first few minutes, the person realizes that they can have a really serious and kind of creative scientific discussion with you where you will, you will sometimes intentionally, you know, ask them questions that you know are, are problems with their research, you know, in a, in a nice way, in a good way, but where you say, you know, I mean, I had this experience just the other day where we were, we're, we're starting a project with a, a company doing work in the DNA damage repair genomic instability space. Okay. And, you know, they're, they're using resources, cell lines that are supposed to be completely isogenic, where the only difference between this cell line and this cell line is the mutation is single gene. But all these genes are genes that are in the genomic instability DNA repair pathway. And I said, isn't that kind of a problem? If you have mutant genes that by definition lead to genomic instability, how can you say they're isogenic? <laughs> Sorry to jump into the weeds, but you know, it's just an example of engaging people with some of the interesting science that's specific to them. It immediately switches them into a mode, I think, of trust as to whether or not you're going to be able to A, understand what they do. And then at the same time, you know, understanding the audience and the learning objectives, be able to kind of pitch visually the science at the level at which the, the intended audience is supposed to get it. Um, so our, yeah, our philosophy is always dive deep to kind of resurface at the right level of, of the scientific explanation, as opposed to just, you know, researching enough to kind of, kind of get it, but you know, it's, it's better to dive much deeper into the science and make sure that you're, your foundations, I think, are strong in a topic because you're in a better position to then make those tough decisions about what is okay to leave out versus not. Um, totally makes sense. Yeah, that's yeah. that's awesome. That's a fantastic answer. Wow. So, you know, I, I really wanted to touch base with you on a, a piece you had worked on with uh, Jeff Chung, uh, which was the E.O. Wilson's Life on Earth series, uh, which was in, in addition to being absolutely gorgeous and so just fun to navigate through, I was also just blown away by the volume of work that you guys produced for that. I mean, it's staggering and not just illustrations, but interactive pieces, 
animation clips. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that that whole project. And also in terms of the production, because you had so much that you were developing for that, I'm wondering if we could bring into that conversation, how do you sort of evaluate the work as it's progressing? And when do you come to those conclusions of, okay, this is good to go on to the next one? Yeah, that's, I mean, so the, the first thing to mention is, I mean, we got, we got unbelievably lucky with that project. I, I have to, you have to mention luck first, because even though I feel that we took the opportunity and we definitely ran with it and we were, you know, we were prepared, you, you have to start with the understanding for yourself that um, I think we were lucky to kind of be at the right place at the right time to get this thing off the ground. And, and what I'm referring to is that, again, through various steps, I, I was fortunate enough to, to kind of set off on, on, a, on a fundraising goal with E.O. Wilson. First of all, to have met E.O. Wilson and to be able to, to, to have um, you know, worked with him is just is, is, was incredible. So we were, we were going around looking for funding for a couple of years. And the, where the luck part comes in is that we ultimately wound up at, at Apple in front of uh, in front of Steve Jobs, and so that that just having the opportunity of that meeting and and uh, just a few months before he passed away, and and having him, you know, I, I, he, there there were some wonderful things that were said there that were also very validating from a career perspective where. He seemed he really understood, I think, what we just talked about. This idea that if you mix together multiple skill sets and if you have a team of highly interdisciplinary people, you know, not interdisciplinary in that the team is interdisciplinary, but you have a, a whole bunch of individuals who are all interdisciplinary in their own training, that you're well equipped to tackle. Uh, in this case, the challenge was can you create, you know, a kind of high school AP bio digital textbook from the ground up in two years. And it was really interesting. I mean, I, I could, I, I don't want to wax philosophical on it. What was really exciting and validating is that, well, no, but he, you know, this was just the, the, the right time, right place part of it is that they had been, they, Apple had been searching for a publisher partner for a couple of years to showcase what the iPad could do in education. That's what that was what they were trying to do. And um, and I think what was what was wonderful is that we stepped out of that meeting where there was this feeling that you know they had not met who they were hoping for that far. And I know they had met all the major publishers, right? I won't I won't name names, but they certainly had met with all the big ones. And so yeah, so we were super lucky to be selected as uh, a very small kind of, you know, underdog team as it, as it were. Although any team with Leo Wilson on it is not underdog. I should take that back. It was, it was, you know, but so to make a long story short, so it was, yeah. So to, first of all, having, having gotten the project was incredible. Jeff, I mean, Jeff is uh, uh, one of the most incredible pre-production artists I've ever had the pleasure of working oh, with. He's a, black belt. Just, he's a black belt in, in, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a, uh, and, and the word pleasure is important here because it's, it's one thing to do what you do well, but it's just, it's been uh, so enjoyable on a day-to-day -day basis working with, with someone of his skill set and his, uh, his demeanor, his professionalism. So, so that's what I'll, you know, say about Jeff for now, but I say that first because the reality of what I want to say is that the, the life on earth was, was a, 
you know, a, a, definitely a team accomplishment. So at that time, there were up to 16 of us. I had to grow the company a little bit more than where it was before in order to tackle the schedule and the pace with which Apple uh, required us to move. So, so Jeff was a critical part of it, but, you know, I could go on and list many of the amazing other people who were, who were with us. Uh, Eric Keller, Evan Ingersoll, Dan Nowakowski, Jonathan Cowell, Sepi De Hashemi, a genie, of course, who was the kind of uh, lead design coordinator and iBooks author uh, person. Um, uh, Rachel Davidovitz. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to forget them, but it was it was an incredible team effort, and it was also great because it it forced us to learn new things about managing projects on that scale. Um, but to get to your assessment, uh, your your evaluation question is really interesting that you paired it because. You know, we were trying to make the best textbook possible, right? Naturally. I will not say that it's not that Apple wasn't trying to do that, but it is fair to say that we were going about it in kind of philosophically very different ways. And what I mean by that is that when you're trying to do something for education, you, you cannot make the assumption as a designer that, you know, you make your best effort, you, 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 you make something and then you assume this is, you know, this is going to work. If I, if I make this and it's this, this beautiful and it hits all the, all the learning objectives and blah, 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 and you just kind of throw it over the wall into the classroom, it's going to do its job. That, that doesn't, that's not how it works. You, as you say, you have to, you have to iterate on it. You have to see how teachers use it. You see how it lands with students. You have to test it in the classroom. There's just no way around it. And that is not something that was within the scope of the Life on Earth project. Mm. So even though we reached a point very quickly in the project where even though we were moving very quickly, I mean, this is over 40 chapters of biology that we had to cover in two years. Um, it is over 500 animations and visuals of, of different kinds, interactives. But any of the kind of testing or evaluation you're talking about, we had to basically slip in on our, on our own time. So that was a little bit of a, you know, kind of philosophical difference between what Apple was after, which I think ultimately was mostly a, I won't say it's just a marketing tool, but it, the role of the project was to show, you know, this is what's possible on iPad. So in that sense, it was exciting. But from the perspective of, hold on, are the, are the students actually like learning the biology and, and, and doing so in a way that is better? than they would using other resources. Uh, that's something that is, is um, that's too bad, that I wish we had, that that was more a part of the, of the project. And how to do that is a whole separate conversation and, and one that actually Jody and I are, are really interested in, yeah. right? So this, this notion of, you know, I mean, you can, you can do everything from a, a survey style, you know, or you can use the tools that, that, um, Jody and I see and have tried to deploy, and I say Jody and I, but she is the one who's really the, the, the leading that effort in, a, in, the, in the best way. Uh, and I'm, I'm talking about the, the methodologies that we see in the learning sciences or in the, even the cognitive psychology field where people are, are relying on things like eye tracking and other types of testing methodologies to really get at the bottom of like what, what are people, how actually people are consuming this work because they, they say one thing, but then the data can tell you something different. Right. And so it's, 
it's it's really interesting in a whole different field. Uh, well, I'm very glad yeah. you brought that up because I was actually going <laughs> to uh, ask you about that as well because I applaud what you guys have been doing. Uh, you and Jody have published some really important work on evaluating the way students are interacting with this material because I think it's sort of cliche to say, oh, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. And, you know, people extrapolate from that and think, oh, well, if one picture is worth a thousand words, an animation or an interactive must be that much more powerful. But how much research has actually been done that shows the efficacy of the work that we do? And the folks who are doing that research are yourself and Jody Jenkinson. And I, yeah, it's well, fantastic. I mean, we're, we're, it's, it's, it's kind of you to put it that way, but needless to say, we're, we're, or at least I, I obviously I shouldn't speak for Jody. I feel like a complete outsider in that field because, um, you know, it's, it's a, there's a whole separate set of methodologies and, and fascinating questions. It's, so it's actually really, well, first of all, it's interesting. And I, I'm, I'm happy that you asked because at the very least, it just lets me mention a new grant and network that we've that we're creating at the moment that I would love for the the community to know about, and that's so NSF has these grants for what are called uh, RCNs, research collaboration networks, and they have one in particular that focuses on undergraduate biology uh, biology education, and so Jody and I and a um, a biology professor Susan Keen at, at UC Davis kind of joined forces and wrote one of these grants and created this, this uh, network called uh, Visibly. So if you go to visibly, V-I-S-A-B-L-I.org, okay. it's definitely in its infancy. But the goal behind it, or at least the, the impetus for, for this network, is I think something that, that Jody and I observed for the last few years, or at least ever since we, we met and were interested in these questions, and that is that if you consider that animation that ultimately gets used in the classroom, you know, there are multiple communities. We see at least three, there are probably more, but three communities that are all somewhat aligned in their goal for having that animation be successful. And those communities are, for one, the teachers. So the, the, the learning, uh, you know, the, the well, the, the biology teacher community, the instructor community, Another community are, of course, the visualizers, the, the, the folks like us who are actually creating the, the media, the instructional media. And the third community is the, the academic uh, learning sciences, cognitive psychology community. In other words, people who are asking the kinds of questions that we were just talking about a few minutes ago, which is, you know, how do you are there, are there rules or are there factors in, in making certain design decisions that will lead to better learning outcomes? Uh, not just, you know, more engagement. Like if you make it prettier and, and you know, will you engage the students more? That's, that's great. That's also very important. But it's a different question from do they actually understand the science better? And, and how do you measure those things? So those three communities, it seems to us, are all interconnected in their desire to create better instructional media, but they never talk to each other or almost never. So these are, these are pretty much completely siloed communities. And not only that, but they kind of have interesting interdependencies between them. So on the one hand, so I'll just throw out a few questions just as, as examples of the questions we're asking ourselves. By making it more obvious how designers like ourselves create these instructional media, 
can that help instructors better select animations in their classrooms? Mm. If the community of people who create visualizations, what would happen if we could bring to them the results of the learning sciences, but in a way that is more immediately accessible and applicable in their day-to-day work? Because I find that we run into a lot of people in, in, the, in, in our field, in the visualization field, where they're actually hungry for kind of almost like, you know, justifications for the design decisions they make. Things that almost could serve as a, you know, as kind of a currency with our clients where they say, look, no, we'd recommend you go this way. And actually to support that is this, this set of studies that shows that, you know, X, Y, Z. So, so the question is, is there, is there something that the learning sciences have to offer the visualization community that can help us in our process? And I can tell you from the research, um, visual research community, what we found with Jody is that there are often issues with the quality of the visual stimuli that they use in the research. So unfortunately, a lot of these scientists... Sorry, who, could you talk yeah. about what you mean by quality there? So it's, yeah, it's an important, what I mean by that is sometimes when you read the studies coming out of this field, the, the, the learning sciences and the, in the, uh, again, I, I, it's kind of the intersection of cognitive psychology, um, educational research, learning sciences, a typical paper will ask a question like, okay, if you have an animation with text is the student doing better if they just watch the animation, just read the text, or if they look at both? <laughs> so that's that sort of thing. Right. Or, um, uh, in other words, th- there are some f- interesting and fundamental questions that are being asked. But my, my issue with the quality comment that I made is that sometimes the actual visual media that they use in their experiments feels either very dated or just does not reflect the richness of things that are actually being used in classrooms. Mm. And we've actually tried to mine this more deeply. So recently we've, we've just kind of, we're, we're reaching completion. We started our grant with a needs assessment where we did, uh, we interviewed 10 people from each of these three communities, which is admittedly a small sample, but 30 hours of interviews, it was still a, a fair bit of work because we wanted to, we didn't want to ride on our assumptions. We wanted to know, uh, and try to better understand what are the challenges of each group. And what we realized in the research uh, community is that they don't necessarily have the resources or certainly the funding to have the visual stimuli to be used in their experiments that they wish they had. So they're either cobbling together existing resources that don't always match. You know, an example I like to give is if you're if you're trying to ask a question like, is animation better than a still graphic as a fundamental question? But then you go find, you know, some diagram of the cell cycle on Google, and then somewhere else you go find some animation on the cell cycle, and then you go about comparing apples and oranges, right? I mean, you can't, you have to have kind of controlled stimuli to get meaningful answers to those fundamental questions Mm -hmm. about the power of still interactive and and animated media. So anyway, to to make a long story short, we're we're still exploring what are the benefits of having these communities work more closely together? And, you know, that sounds kind of, that sounds pie in the sky, but it, much more specifically, are there certain resources that we can build that will facilitate the work of each of these communities? Um, you know, do the teachers need some sort of new um, system by which to 
search, select, and integrate visual media in their curricula? Mm. Uh, does the visualization community need almost like a, a mini handbook that digests and summarizes the, the findings from the learning sciences to apply to their work, um, et cetera, et cetera? So anyway, I just wanted to, to mention that because that's kind of an ongoing effort and we're, we're hoping to involve as many people as possible. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I, I want to ask you about that. Is there any other folks out there whose uh, research you've been following and who you've been really hoping to connect with? In the so specifically in kind of the education research space or just yeah. kind of research in our okay, yeah. Education. So, yeah, there, there are definitely other groups who have done really interesting work on. I mean, one, you know, if there are kind of little sub areas that that I think. I think it's fair to say Jody and I are particularly interested in. They they would fall into things like how do you deal with complexity in visual media? How do you treat complexity? What are some kind of design um, rules or, or principles that one might follow to tackle how you visually depict things that are, you know, is, is there kind of irreducible complexity that you need to include and so that's one area, and that's directly connected, I think, in our in our interests also to this notion of uh, preconceptions or misconceptions, right? So, w what are those anyway? How do they come about? Uh, can we avoid them, right? So, um, and and some of the experiments we started doing a few years back now tr try to start kind of scratching the surface of that. So if you a, a, a typical example I use because it's easy to imagine, and, and we've described this study before, is if you know in, in animating a molecule moving through an environment, do you, do you show directed motion? Do you show stochastic motion? Do you, you know, do you show a whole bunch of other stuff it's bumping into, or um, or not? And and does you know what what are the pros and cons of each of each design decision? So. Those are the kinds of sub areas we've been interested in. And there, there are certainly others in the field who have done really interesting work in trying to understand threshold concepts in biology. So not just, you know, if you open up Alberts and look at the table of contents, like this is all the stuff I need to learn. But if you almost apply another filter to that table of contents and ask, you know, you're not going to get any of this unless you fundament fundamentally understand the notion of a chemical gradient mm -hmm. or the notion that molecules don't know where they're going. You know, it's all random motion and it's just because of shape and other types of complementarity that they ultimately bump into what they need to bump into and bind. And, you know, there's, there's this kind of difficult thing we see with most students, with anybody, frankly, to, to reconcile the messiness and crowdedness of biological system systems with how, efficient almost you see them perform at, at macroscopic scales mm -hmm. so you know trying to get that across in, in visualizations i think is a is a never-ending interesting challenge so that's that's kind of a little bit about the 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 interesting or, or the parts that we're interested in our research and of, of course how technology can help remedy that so uh, a recent study that you know uh, looks at that is the idea of using kind of adaptive learning trees where I mean, adaptive learning is not a new concept. Obviously, that's been deployed and, and is a, a powerful idea. But you know, to what extent can visuals play a role in that? Right. So, if a student has a misconception, 
what happens if you show them an animation that visualizes that misconception to them? Does that actually make them react in a way where they say, oh, no, hold on, that doesn't look right. And it kind of snaps them out of that misconception. Or does it just reinforce it? And they go, yeah, no, that, that looks about right. That's, that's, that's how I thought it worked. So, you know, little, little questions like that. And we're, we're finding some, you know, pretty interesting and sometimes shocking results. Like the fact that in a, in a recent study that we did with a University of Toronto undergrads, 83% of biology undergrads think that molecules have directed motion. Right, like a, like a consciousness too. Like, like, you know, like some sort of Star Trek force field emitted from the receptor that gets the growth factor to, you know, 83%. And that was, I mean, some studies suffer from a, a very low N, right? Where you ask like 20 people and then you, no, this is like over a thousand undergraduate biology students in this study. And uh, you know, you told us this amazing fact once in a presentation at BMC about What's the, the number of times a molecule in a cell will touch every other molecule in the cell? Do you remember what that? I I do, and you know, we were talking about proper reference and credit, and you know, I'm I'm just now grabbing the book off my shelf, which is of course the Machinery of Life by none other than David Goodsell. I believe I swiped that straight from one of David's chapters. In fact, I found it. Here it is. This is, this is from the chapter one introduction of this amazing book that everybody should own, The Machinery of Life, right? Second edition. David writes, on average, though, it will take only take about a second for those two molecules to bump into each other at least once. In other words, I mean, this is, there are other sentences around it, but this is on, on page uh, six, Last, last paragraph. So, yeah, this notion that in this incredible messy soup of billions of molecular entities, each one will encounter every other one at least once every second. That's amazing. I can, I can never, I never get sick of just pondering that, even just on my own. Like, even just saying it to yourself is enough to give you goosebumps, right? Yeah. It's like, wait, really? <laughs> it's, it's, it at least reminds you that yeah, our senses or our, our intuition of the temporal and spatial scales that we're dealing with are completely out of whack with, with what we're, um, you know. And it's the same thing at the other end of the spectrum, the, the, the geological evolutionary timescales, uh, where we also just don't, you know, we, we, can, we, can, we can say things like, yes, dinosaurs went extinct, extinct 66 million years ago. And it's like, what's 66 million years? Mm, yeah, oh, Right? Number I mean, so hard to visualize. Yeah. So here's a here's a fun project for the stuck at home pandemic parents. Or you don't need to be a parent. It's just I happen to be motivated by again my nine year old. We picked the longest distance between two points in our apartment, which happened. We happen to have this long hallway, and we measured that, and then we taped together all these pieces of paper to stretch over that distance. And then we took 4.5 billion years and we divided it by that distance to create kind of a physical timeline of Earth. And then we used kind of blue paper to show all the years during which life was still in the oceans and, and green paper. So that project, talk about a sense of scale, was amazing. I mean, I knew kind of how it was going to turn out, but when we actually built it together, it was mind-blowing because... 
when we went to the point of putting humans on it, it was that tiny, it was the width of the little, you know, pencil mark at the very rightmost edge of the last piece of paper. Oh, yeah. It was like, that's humans. <laughs> and when you see that, you're like, okay, I think I think I get it. Like we have, <laughs> so it's, it's another one of those things where, you know, the more we can kind of come to grips with these, these quantities that we deal with in science that are just, um, really tough to, to communicate to, to students, but a lot, a lot of fun. That's, that's a great, I think I might have to try that part. That part. It's, you will not be, it's, it's guaranteed to be fun because it will change the way you, uh, yeah. One thing you'll realize, sorry, I could go on about this, but I'll just, you know, one finding, I'll call it a finding as if we discovered something new, you know, one, one realization that struck me for the first time that I did not expect is how early life appeared. Mm. You tend to think of this notion of, oh, well, you know, the chemical conditions were right, but it took time for the, I mean, you know, stromatolites and the like, we're talking 3.8, 3.9 billion years ago. And at that point, we already had the signs of life. So the beginning of life is shockingly soon after the formation of the earth itself and the solar system. It's really quite amazing. I mean, when you put these things on on this timeline, it changes your 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 thinking about things. Oh, absolutely. Anyway, sorry. I don't know how we wound up into geology and the <laughs> earth, but that's what you know. No, that's great. That's awesome. Wow. Wow. So, you know, I want to ask you a few questions about um, you know, the evolution of the field and, you know, where you see things going. Uh, technology, obviously, you know, we've been talking about it quite a bit throughout this podcast and has a really big impact on our industry. So I'm wondering, what are some of the changes you've noticed in the tools that you used over your career? And where do you see things going in the next maybe five to 10 years? Yeah. Um, well, it's it's really exciting, and of course, it's very challenging because we're all operating in a in a at, at the intersection of fields that are each themselves evolving incredibly quickly, right? I mean, it's it's one thing to just be a scientist and have to keep up with everything emerging in the life sciences, but if at the same time you're trying to follow everything happening, you know, at SIGGRAPH and the entertainment industry and the software industry, I think that's what makes it so exciting, frankly, but also kind of daunting. I think, you know, I mean, we obviously we try to keep track of, of all the exciting new developments in, in hardware and, and software. I, I tend to be more kind of uh, always mindful or, or obsessed with the idea of how does, you know, yes, exciting new technology, but I, I always try and ask the question immediately afterwards, like, what is it really that's unique about this technology that can best match our goals of, of better learning, right, of better communication? And I'm very, I like to be pretty... I don't think I'm easily swayed, to be honest. So I love, you know, I love VR. I mean, we have like three helmets at home and we, you know, we, we, we experiment and all this stuff. But I'm still really wondering. I mean, for example, an obvious example question that I would ask myself and I, and I ask others in, in hopes that a, an answer comes out at some point. You know, here we are talking about how over decades, hundreds of years as, as uh, visually minded, you know, designers, artists, we manage the gaze of a viewer on our, on our medium. 
we manage their attention through, well, through motion, through contrast, through color, all, all those rules that have arrived with, you know, this, this kind of now relatively mature field of, you know, cinematography for, for motion media and things like that. Does that all kind of go out the window when you now put your user in an environment where they can stare anywhere they want at any time? So, you know, they may be looking at, you know, three o'clock and the important part of the polymerase reaction is happening at, you know, eight o'clock. Mm-hmm. What, you know, so I know that sounds very kind of silly, stupid, as it, but, it, but it's that kind of question that I ask myself, which is what is what are the unique affordances of that new medium that we should be mining mm-hmm. um, and and what are the parts that we shouldn't necessarily be you know what what becomes more excitement of new technology and kind of eye candy um, so I think though you know that's more of a I won't say a criticism it's, it doesn't really answer your question I think there's a lot of exciting places where where you know, we we see the field evolving. I think you know one thing that more specifically we're interested in, and we're starting to develop in our own productions, and and hopefully will make its way sooner than later, even in the software that we're that you know through Molecular Maya. I, I think really an area of interest is this kind of you know I guess I would call it like agent based systems, right? So systems where you have a certain number, usually a large number of of evolving entities that have certain rules applied to them. And depending on those rules, you can observe emergent behaviors. Uh, So it's it's not just like simulations, because we all use simulations in our, you know, in our particle systems and other things in, in our visualizations. I think it's more, I mean, one example, just again, to be specific, at the moment, we're developing part of an animation which shows the assembly of the AIM-2 inflammasome. It's, it's an AIM-2, there are different flavors of inflammasome, but one of them, and it's it's kind of dynamic assembly of fibers upon fibers upon fibers. It's It's this really complicated system where we could have either just built the animation and that would be challenging enough but instead jonathan on the team who again is this unbelievable coder decided to build a tool that just builds the animation for you and for which you have control over all the variables i mean it just it it blew my mind when he showed me <laughs> showed me what he was up to. So, it's this kind of nested upon nested upon nested. Uh, we we were talking about the levels this morning. There are like five or six nested simulation systems that let you control which domain interacts with the DNA first. And if you have enough of these domains floating around, they will then create a complex upon which then another dynamic fiber will grow. Again, the, these ideas are not novel. Others, and, and I think immediately of, for example, the book in silico that uh, Nick Woolridge and Charles Lumsden and um, Jason Sharp. Thank you, Jason, of course, uh, at, at Axis wrote over a decade ago now, right? So uh, exactly that kind of th- this exciting exploration of how can we make the software not just build the visualizations, but how do we how do we start to embed some of these behaviors that can generate the the um the the molecular complexes and and um, reproduce their their molecular behaviors automatically and in a way that you have iterative control over that so anyway just to that's one area i think of just because it's so recent and it's something where we're in at the moment is is to keep exploring that intersection of the the power of kind of the tools that the entertainment industry gives us but building more and more biological relevance inside them 
so that we can start to visualize things that, you know, it's very interesting that neither the entertainment industry, of course, visualizes because they don't understand the content, subject matter, but also that the scientific community is not necessarily visualizing themselves because they don't have the same level of software and, and visualization expertise than people in our field do. Mm-hmm. So, so I think th- that's an interesting intersection where we really like to, to, to work there. Yeah. And it, I think also of, of our current SARS project, which I think, I, I hope is a reflection of that. Yeah. Where, about that. Um, the work yeah. that's coming out these days, it's amazing to see what people have been able to put out for helping the public to understand and also for scientists to communicate with each other about the uh, COVID-19 virus. What are some of the things you've noticed and some of the things that uh, you would like to see done as this whole situation unfolds? Yeah. Well, first, it's been amazing to see just, I mean, I think the way not only the scientific community, but also our our science visualization community has rallied and kind of joined forces and shared resources. And I think that's that's amazing. And, and I think because I sense that for most of us, I know it's certainly the case for us, you know, these are not these are not always, uh, you know, paid paid client projects. These are a kind of labor of love kind of thing where in addition to your your heavy workload, you're trying to. So I think that, yeah, that's my first reaction. I think, I mean, for us, we've tried to at, at the same time, because so many people are doing work on it and understandably are, are, are wanting to get a handle on it. We've really tried to focus on an area that we feel others have have not done as much in that leverages what I hope are kind of existing strengths from our past work. And, and what I mean by that is the complex choreography of how the spike transitions from its pre-fusion state to driving the membrane fusion. So what we've seen a lot of, and, and it reflects some of the data that came out earliest, is... You know, what What does this thing look like? What does the virus look like, but also what does the spike look like? But the vast, vast majority of everything we've seen is the spike in its, you know, in its kind of a dress rehearsal state and its pre-fusion state. The things that it does in order to actually drive infection and membrane fusion are, are really complicated. And... What, what's been interesting to me is to see that it, it's not just complicated for people who are like aren't in the science. It's complicated for the scientists. I mean, we we just um, and I, I don't want to jinx it because the, the paper is literally under review right now at Science. But with some collaborators, we found that th- there's a new set of inhibitors, to make a long story short, that's being considered for, for SARS. And the way that they work is at a very distinct step in this complicated membrane fusion process. And in the initial round of of reviews, there was difficulty by the reviewers in understanding how this thing actually works. Mm -hmm. And and these are, you know, these are science reviewers. I mean, (laughs) the journal science, this is kind of, you know, so, so the idea that a visualization based, of course, on as much of the accurate data as, as we can gather helps contextualize the mechanism of something that is even challenging for the scientific community to understand, we, we love being there. We hope that that can be, you know, an, an important contribution. Um, and and I'd, I'd like to think that the tools that we built, the molecular mind tools have really greatly facilitated the, the simulation that we were able to make, uh, which is this, again, this complex choreography of the spike 
unfolding and refolding many of its domains in ways that are really hard to animate by hand. I mean, these things are, are literally protein folding transitions, like alpha helical transitions and uh, things where you need, you, you can get the domains to move, but you also need everything that's attached to the protein on either end to travel with it, right? So the, right. the membranes are moving together as the protein is bringing them closer, as it's refolding. It's a, it's a, it's a fun challenge. And I think our, for, for, for this point in time, the modeling and rigging Molecular Maya kit, we couldn't have done it without it. It was really instrumental in, uh, in, in pulling that off. So we're still developing that project. Our, our end goal is to create an interactive visualization that not only shows the process, but that allows any, any viewer, including scientists, to stop at key points, key interactive points, to really learn about and interrogate, like, hold on, how did you build this model? Like, why, why is it moving like this? I want that data to be embedded in the visualization itself mm -hmm. so that it's much more transparent why it looks the way it looks. It, it shouldn't be a, you know, take our word for it. We, we do good work. You know, this is scientifically accurate. Believe me. No, that, that doesn't cut it. When, when it's based on literally hundreds of studies and data sets, why not make it accessible? right then and there. And, and, and not only that, but in places where there's more than one uh, idea about how it's happening, build a, a competing visualization and embed it. In other words, we, we want to show alternate competing models inside our visualization so that we're not taking sides. We're just kind of presenting the data and, and making it easier to synthesize all of this data. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I think the, the contributions you've made to the field are evident. They're so just everything that you've been doing over the past you know, few decades is really been felt throughout the entire industry. And I thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with me today. I think we might have to wrap up, but um, I just, I, again, I just want to express my profound gratitude for you uh, to take the time to, to speak with me. This has been amazing. Well, it's it's really first of all, thank you so much for for uh, your comments. It's it's thrilling to to think that. I guess I'll just end by saying that as someone who is not formally trained and who has not come out of one of the programs, it's been incredible to discover the AMI and to interact with other peoples in this field because there's such kind of a, a camaraderie that has been evolving that I think is just wonderful. There's a lot of support in the field. There's a lot of people sharing what they do. And so it's it's really, it's fantastic to, to know that if, if some of what we do is, is helping in that, it's great. And, you know, thanks for the opportunity to, to share uh, some of these thoughts on, on the podcast. I'm really excited to see how this, how this podcast evolves and I'm, I'm honored to be part of it. So thank you. And a big thank you to you as well for listening. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. I know I did. Be sure to check out the show notes, which provide links to several of the topics we covered. This was a wonderful privilege and experience to have this conversation with Gail. And I'm looking forward to sharing more conversations with the amazing folks who make up the illuminating and breathtaking work in the medical illustration industry. So until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and stay up.